Uh, we're continuing our series on the book of Romans today, and we are into Romans chapter 8 of the Bible's New Testament. Um, if you want to read a book, if you're new to the Bible and you want to read a book that's going to explain what in the world Christianity is, Romans is a great book to read for that, and people have often embraced the book of Romans because of that, because the way that the author puts forth the message of Christianity is so clear and so in-depth. Uh, but he also addresses a whole host of things. It's 16 chapters long, and it's just about everything under the sun is in the book of Romans. If you look closely, uh, you will find that. And I want to talk to you today about a subject that he brushes by quickly in a, a relatively short passage, but it is very important for us today. And this is the trick uh, when you read the Bible. You've got to slow it down a little bit. Sometimes, you know, we, we get into a routine where we're trying to learn to read the Bible and learn to pray and all of that, and you definitely need to get into that routine and get into that routine daily whatever way works for you. There's no prescribed you know, method, thou shalt read th this way and that way. <laughs> There's no prescribed method. You've got to figure out a way that works for you. But one of the mistakes that people make when they read the Bible is they read it too fast. And it, folks, you're not reading a newspaper. You're not reading an article on the internet. It's, it's different. And the way that God will communicate to you through the scripture is, is quite profound, uh, but sometimes you got to slow it down. And this is a passage where you definitely have to slow it down and think about what's being said here because it's incredibly relevant. We're going to talk about the subject today of natural evils. Natural evils. You say, what in the world is a natural evil? Well, we've all asked the question at one point or another without knowing what this term means. Why and how can God allow and, or cause, we sometimes say allow, or we sometimes say cause, and we sometimes don't know what to say, but you fill in the blank in, in life. And if you want to look you know, at the planet, you look at things like earthquakes, or hurricanes, or volcanoes, or viruses, or floods, or tsunamis, you know, we've got an earthquake that hit to Turkey and Syria. Folks, it's, it's indescribable, the catastrophe, the damage, the death that has happened. It's indescribable. You can't even put it into words when you look at it and you see the destruction that happened there. Uh, we're able to help a little bit with, with the situation there. Thank God that there are countries that can raise money and send money and all of that, and we've raised about $500 through ERDO, uh, Emergency Relief and Development Overseas, and they're getting food there and shelter there and all of those things. But folks, we look at this, and it's just unfathomable destruction, you know? You look at things like a hurricane and things like a virus, you know, we've with the COVID, the first pandemic in a century, uh, all of these things that flash these images on your screen, you know, and it's just devastation. 
It, we sometimes call this a natural evil to distinguish it from moral evil because people often ask the question, why would God do this? I mean, nobody can cause an earthquake to happen, can they? Probably not. Nobody can cause a... Like, it seems like these things are out of our control. It seems like they're coming from nature. It seems like they're coming from creation. And they cause this kind of destruction. So we say to ourselves, well, then God's got to be involved in this somehow. So why would God do this? Why would he cause this? Why would he allow this? Why did this happen? And then in our own personal lives, we can apply the same thing. Um, people go through suffering and are afflicted with things that happen to them, and it's totally beyond their control. They didn't do anything to cause it. There's all kinds of situations like that. There's all kinds of whatever, disease, disorders, all kinds of things that just come into people's lives like a flood. And they did nothing to, to cause it. They can they look back and say, why did, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my loved one? Where was God in the whole thing? Did he allow it? Did he cause it? Is he unable to stop it? And we ask ourselves all of these questions. Well, these are not questions that are new to us folks. These are questions that were asked 2,000 years ago and, and through all the ages, people have been asking and struggling with these kinds of questions. And you say, wow, the pastor's going to give us the answer. I can't wait. Well, no, I'm not. Uh, because there are no easy answers to this question. If you're looking for some kind of bumper sticker, Bible verse, you know, aha, here, we've got the answer to the question. The Bible has the answer. No, it doesn't. Not in full. It doesn't. Uh, there's no easy answer to this. And be very careful when you think you've heard an easy answer or when somebody gives you an easy answer to these kinds of questions because usually, or probably all the time, they haven't really thought it through and they haven't considered the amount of pain that people are in because of these things. And we try to come up with these little quotes of Bible verses and uh, you know maybe throw in a little bit of Greek and Hebrew and sound smart, but it does nothing to alleviate people's pain and suffering. And sometimes, just a piece of advice for you, if you're Christ follower in the room or watching online, sometimes when you run into somebody who's suffering and who's experiencing suffering and they're sharing with you, you know what the best thing to do is? Keep quiet. Don't say anything. Sit there with the person. Let them talk to you. Let them share their story. Let them share their heart with you and say nothing, and just be with that person. And sometimes that's the best thing that Christian folk can do is say nothing. Keep your mouth closed. Uh, I'll never forget the time where I went in to pray for uh, a, a little baby. Um, this, this little baby was healthy, born healthy, and a month into her life, she suffered a massive brain hemorrhage an inexplicable massive brain hemorrhage, devastating for the parents, absolutely devastating. They had already one child who was disabled, and so here they wanted a healthy baby, and you know, one month in, this, this baby is fighting for her life. And I remember myself and, and Don Mann, 
uh, whose in-laws are here today, and, and we went into that children's hospital uh, and prayed for that little baby. And the grief and the anguish from the parents, I will never forget it. They grabbed on to, to Don Mann. He was the senior pastor of the church at the time. And he, they grabbed on to him, and they just wept and wept and wept as we prayed for that baby and dedicated that baby to the Lord in the children's hospital. Uh, and then a couple of days later, they, the parents of the, of the child called me on the phone, and I actually spoke to the doctor, I think, on the phone, and they were thinking of just pulling the life support. And they said, this, this is what we're doing to keep this baby alive. It's hurting the baby. We need to pull the life support and see what happens and see what, you know, if God wants to do a miracle, we'll see what happens. But, and so they were counseled to do this, spoke to the doctor and so on, and they did, and they, they pulled the life support. I don't know why I'm sharing this with you. Just off the top of my head, it just came into my mind. And, um, and then a couple of days later, I, I went in to pray for the, for the little baby, thinking that it was the end because the doctor said it would take about 48 hours. Went in, went to the wrong room. They had moved the baby to another room, went and found the baby in the other room. The baby's in the grandmother's arms, no life support, nothing. The grandmother looks at me and says, Pastor Joe, don't say a word. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't say one word. I didn't have no Bible verse to quote, nothing. Said nothing and just left. And that she, she, she survived. She came out of it. This baby, people were stunned. I mean, it was like a miraculous thing that happened. She should have died. Still alive today, got her own challenges and things like that, but it was, it was a miraculous moment. I say this to tell you there's no easy answers, folks, and sometimes you just got to keep your mouth closed. Now, what God does, though, is he gives us a multifaceted how, when you ask these questions, rather than a why. If you're going to ask God why, 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 you're going to be frustrated because you're not going to get the answer. What he does do, though, is he gives you a how. How do I process this? How do I live with this? How do I understand this earthquake? It kills 50,000 people. My loved one got cancer. How do I understand these things? How do I process these things? And this is what God does. But he doesn't tell you why. And you're never going to know why this side of eternity. And this passage in Romans chapter 8 uh, 15 to 27 gives us so much. I could probably do eight sermons just on this passage. It, it, it has so much in it. Um, from verse 15, the spirit you received, and this is picking up from last week, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Uh, uh, God has adopted you into his family through salvation and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what he's talking about. And by him we cry, Appa, Father, this Aramaic term for Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You see, it's a relationship. You're adopted into the family. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. Just remember that for a moment. In order that we may also share in his glory. 
Now you skip to verse 18 and you ignore the title in your Bible there. Your Bible has some kind of title between verse 17 and verse 18. This is just done by convention. Sometimes this is okay and it helps us read better, but sometimes it gets in the way. In this case, it gets in the way because it makes you break your thought. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be future revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. You say, I'm lost already. Hold on, I'll break it down for you. And brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. There's so much in here, folks. There's probably eight sermons in here. I'm going to give, it, give you just some observations for you to, to swallow and to process. Number one, we will all experience suffering. There's no exemptions, folks. You're not exempt from suffering because you believe whatever you believe. This is not true. We all will experience suffering. It doesn't matter what your religious persuasion is. Well, I'm a Christian. Uh-huh. And you are not exempt from suffering because of that. Suffering is a part of this life. Verse 17 has it. Verse 18 has it. And this is why I don't like the break there. We share in his sufferings. I consider our present sufferings. You will face suffering personally in one form or another in this life. It is an inevitable reality. It's not, the right question to ask is not why. The right question to ask is how. How do I deal with this? How do I process this? At next observation, we live in the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. So verse 15, uh, you see that the Spirit of God, the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God within the life of the believer makes him or her adopted into God's family. It's clear. 
it, this is, this is uh, uh, supposed to be in this verse a, a reality, a, a present experiential reality for the believer. And yet in verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Hold on a second. I thought we had it already. Seems like he's contradicting himself. It seems like he's saying you're adopted into God's family, but you haven't yet received it. What is that? Is he, is he, did he not forget what he wrote a few verses earlier? Well, no, he knows exactly what he's writing. And this is what one author calls the already and the not yet. Just for those of you who like to read, I throw this in for free. A uh, great scholar who died last year, Gordon Fee, Gordon Fee, F-E-E, -E, coined this term. We live in the already and the not yet. Fantastic book. You buy one book about the Bible in your life, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. Fantastic scholar. And he put it in simple terms. We live in the already and the not yet. And you'll see this in scripture all over the place. Already you have received eternal life, but you haven't yet received eternal life. You still die physically. Already you have the spirit, you are adopted into God's family, but you have not yet experienced adoption yet. It's like you have some of it, but you don't have all of it. And this is the time that we live in, the already, yes, but not yet. There's still more to come. This is why we have communion. It's what it is. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We live in the in-between time. And so we see God do things, but we don't see God do everything. We see sometimes the miraculous happens in people's lives, like little baby I described at the beginning, and sometimes we don't. And we don't know the answer as to why. That's not the right question. The right question is how. There's an already and a not yet, and this is what we live in between. So this implies there's something to come that we are supposed to anticipate and wait for. Number three, nature, creation. We're talking about natural evils. Nature, creation is in a present state of decay. He says bondage to decay. It is subjected to frustration. Okay, you have to slow this down, folks. This is quite a statement to make. Because he's, he's not saying that creation is getting sort of better and better and kind of uh, evolving and improving itself and refining itself. He's not saying this. He's saying that creation is in a place of decay. It's, it's not as it ought to be, and it's actually bound to decay, and it's waiting for liberation, for redemption from decay. This is really something else when you start to think about it. Uh, I read from um, uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist who writes in his book, uh, River Out of Eden, this is, man is not a Christian at all, okay? In fact, he loathes uh, Christianity and is a devout 
uh, atheist. This is what he said. The amount, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there is ever a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. That's a bleak view. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind forces, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Wow, it's a dark view of creation, but what he gets right is the brokenness in it. What he gets right is the suffering in it. What he gets right is the bondage to decay. Paul would probably agree with what he's saying right up until the end. Because what's being stated by Paul here is that, yes, decay is, is in creation. It's falling apart. It's breaking apart. But that's not the end of the story. It will be changed, it will be redeemed, and it is waiting for this to happen. According to what he's saying, creation is waiting. He's trying to personify it. It's waiting for something to happen to us. And that something is the physical resurrection and redemption of our bodies. You need to understand how profound this is because back in that time, you have a competing view with the idea of a bodily resurrection. You have a competing view saying that the physical world, the natural world, the body is evil. And this is the problem in life is that the natural world and the physical is in the way. This is what the Gnostics taught. And salvation for the Gnostics was in secret knowledge. It wasn't in the physical world. This is why they could not accept the idea that Jesus came in the flesh, you see. And they rejected this idea. You'll see Paul challenge this in Colossians. You'll see John challenge it in 1 John. The idea they keep saying, Jesus came in the flesh, in the flesh, in the flesh. They deliberately say this. Why? Because there was this competing view. And here you have Paul teaching not only is the physical uh, world, the natural world groaning, it's waiting for the redemption of our physical bodies. So that means our physical bodies are good, not evil. And they will be changed and they will be transformed and they will be resurrected. It's another reason why we take communion. You proclaim the Lord's death until he 
comes. Well, what's going to happen when he comes? There will be a change, a transformation, a global transformation, but also a resurrection. Yes, I said that, a physical resurrection of the dead, of the believer. This is a promise that Paul hangs his hat on. You see the same kind of thing back in Isaiah, this idea of creation in a, in a state that it shouldn't be in. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people, and all the environmentalists will probably agree with that. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Something is awry in creation. And part of it, according to Isaiah, is that people have defiled it. Wow. Quite the passage of scripture. Nature is waiting for us, waiting for resurrection, waiting for redemption. Wow, that's quite staggering. And when you put that into perspective and you see these kinds of catastrophic things happening, this is partially explained by what's going on in nature. It's broken. It's subject to decay. Who is the one who subjected it in hope? Well, some say that that's God who subjected it in hope, that it would be redeemed one day. There's a debate about who is the one who subjected it to this. But the overall point is it is broken, and you will see these kinds of things happen in creation because of this brokenness that is in our natural world, it leads us to another implication. You need to watch out, folks, for dangerous theology when it comes to decaying uh, creation. And by, when I say dangerous theology, oh, well, you know, this er earthquake over yonder is because those people are such terrible people and it's God who's striking them because of their religious views or because of their mor morality and all of this. And this is why we see this happen over here. And this is why there's this tsunami. And this is why there's this earthquake and this volcano and this virus. And, and that, that's why it's God. He's doing it. He's throwing lightning bolts at people. Wow, folks, you need to watch out for this. This is a very, very dangerous view, and it has next to no justification from the Bible. You have to yank some verses about the sovereignty of God and push them to try and make them say that, but it's a very, very weak argument. I always am stunned by what Jesus had to say about this. You will only find this in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. The people are coming to him, and they're telling him, look what happened. It's on CNN. There were some present at that time who told Jesus the news. Look, there's these Galileans, you see, and Pontius Pilate, the prefect, he had them killed, and he took their blood, and he mixed it with their own sacrifice. We saw it in the news, Jesus. What do you think of this? They pick a current event, an evil event. If the camera dies, just press a button. It'll come back to life. Yeah? Okay, good. Uh, they pick a current event, and they tell Jesus, what do you think of this? And Jesus answers. Watch his answer. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Galilee is a province that's 
the people who come from there, they call Galileans. Do you think that they were worse people? Is that what you're trying to say? That's why that evil happened to them? He says, no. I tell you, unless you repent, you too will all perish. And he, he says, let me give you another example. And this is Jesus talking. How about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Maybe it was an earthquake that caused that to happen. Do you think that they were more guilty than the others who were living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Doesn't matter how. The issue is, are you right with God? Are you right with God? If you are not right with God, then you too will perish. Maybe it'll be by an earthquake. Here you have a tower falling, which is probably a natural evil, and you have Pontius Pilate doing this heinous deed here with these Galileans. That's a moral evil. You have both kinds of evils here, and Jesus is saying that's not the point. The point is, unless you repent and you get right with God, you too will also perish. Watch out for dangerous theology, folks, when it comes to the idea of decaying creation. There's a lot of implications behind it. Finally, we and the creation and the Holy Spirit, we all groan. That's the term that's used for the future. We all groan for it. Very interesting the way he uses this term, you know, verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning. Verse 23, not only so, we ourselves groan inwardly as we await eagerly. Uh, verse uh, 26, in the same way, the Spirit himself helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. Very, very encouraging. The Spirit of God teaches you how to pray. Sometimes you don't know what to pray for. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're so hurt. Sometimes you're suffering so much you just can't. The Spirit of God intercedes, goes between us and God for us through wordless groans. You'll see later on in the passage, in, right there in Romans 8, that Jesus intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. But the Spirit, us, creation, we all are looking forward to. We're all anticipating. We're all waiting for something to change. Because we all feel I mean, you think that God doesn't feel the anger that you feel when you see these kinds of things happening, when you experience suffering? You think that it doesn't anger God? Oh, it angers God. It infuriates God when he sees human suffering, when he sees death and destruction. I mean, that's why you feel angry, because you got that from God. You got that impulse from God. He created you. In his image. That's why you feel that way. There will be a time when God will clean it up. There will be a time when God will redeem it. When he will transform it. That's his time. We can't 
push magic buttons in the sky and say, okay, now you have to do your thing. This is his time. This is his, he is in control and he is sovereign. Sometimes I wonder why people say, well, you know, they mock and they scoff and they say this idea of the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the redemption of creation, this is nonsense. And they mock it and scoff it and mock it and scoff it. And yet when, when this does happen, it's happening with judgment, folks. You see, if you research the second coming and all these things that Paul is talking about, this is, a, this is an eschatological passage, a passage about the end of things, the end times. There's judgment that is going to come. This is why God is withholding it, because there's judgment associated with it. And this is why he's waiting, because he does not want people to perish. He wants people to get right with God. Jesus said, unless you repent, you too will perish. This is why it's not happened yet. This is why he's waiting, because he loves us, you see. Just, just food for thought. So there's a, there's a collective groaning that we experience and that we should experience because things are not as they should be. This present order of things is not the end of things. It, it cannot be. You cannot have a God who is all-powerful and all-holy, and yet he leaves the creation in the state that it's in. It's a contradiction. This is why the second coming and the return of Jesus, the redemption of the, of the globe, the resurrection of the body, these are essential pieces of the Christian faith. They're not little books on a shelf to collect dust. They're supposed to give you hope and anticipation for the future. Our present sufferings, Paul says, don't compare to the glory of what is to come. He believed it. He preached it. He died believing it. And he calls the readers here to hold on even through moments of suffering, even through moments of suffering. Uh, as we finish up today, I'm going to give you a couple of, couple of announcements um, that have to do with the already and the not yet that we live in, okay? Uh, I'm so excited to tell you that on the 25th of March, uh, which is a Saturday evening, we're going to have a night of worship and water baptism. Uh, Jesus teaches water baptism. He commands people to be baptized in water. It's a picture, as we've seen, the identification with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus to new life. So if you want to be baptized in water, only one prerequisite. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be super knowledgeable. You just have to be a follower of Jesus, an authentic decision to follow Jesus is the only prerequisite that and you know you have to be prepared to get wet because I am going to dip you in water all right so if you want to be baptized in water I don't care who's out there I don't care about your age young or old doesn't matter as long as you know what you're doing I will baptize as many people who want to be baptized I've already got one 
I got one guy who made a, made a commitment so proud of him, uh, uh, crossed the line of faith, I would say, over the last year, and going to baptize him. We're going to have worship, but if you want to be baptized in water, I would invite you to just come and see me, contact me, and I will get that set up for you. Number two, the already and the not yet, we're going to play a screening uh, on Saturday morning of this new movie, Jesus Revolution, almost impossible to see in the province of Quebec. It is open in one theater downtown uh, until Thursday. You'll pay more money there, and you'll have to find parking, paid parking over there. But here, you get it cheaper. We're $10 for adults, 5 bucks for kids. And yes, it's kid-friendly. There's no profanity in it. There's no nudity in it. There's no violence in it. There's some drug use in it because this is 1969 and a period in history in the U.S., but also moved to Canada where God was moving in the lives of people. And we've got it for one show here. You can buy your tickets today at the desk or you can go online, but just don't wait until Saturday morning because we're going to raise the price to 13 at the door. We will have concessions at discounted prices at the door, but we're, we just don't want to handle cash. It's too cumbersome. So come with electronics and we can handle all of that. But I want to show you this trailer uh, one more time for this movie. I cannot wait. Watch the baptisms that take place, folks. Our country is a dark and divided place. But in that tent, there's hope and unity and miracles that I can't even explain. I'd like you to meet my new friend. Lonnie Frisbee, and some of his friends. Welcome. These kids are runaways, most of them. They need our help. Chuck, stop. They don't belong here. Agreed? There's this church. It's called Calvary Chapel. When we say we're looking for truth, what if this is true? Because everything that we've been trying it's not working for me. I just can't be lying down again. What I have felt in there, I haven't... What if it's good for a minute and then it's gone? What then? We can find out together. Seems the movement's everywhere. Los Angeles, even in the South. It's spreading like wildfire. Is this the beach where people get baptized? We drove all the way here. Where from? Texas. Texas. If any of this is real, I kind of hope it is, to be honest. It's a family, man. Don't give up on it. Well, we won't baptize you in the beach. <laughs> we do the baptisms, but you see the feel of that movie. Uh, folks,
People are inviting friends who are not Christians at all. Can I just tell you, you're not going to be embarrassed by this movie, okay? Some of you Christians, you know what I'm talking about. This is not a cheesy, you know, churchy dialogue. This is a movie that's going to gross number three this weekend at the box office behind uh, uh, Quantum Mania, Cocaine Bear, and Jesus Revolution is going to be the top three in the North American box office. Okay, so really great opportunity. Invite friends who don't who, are, who don't believe, who are not Christians, I'm telling you, they're going to be touched by this movie. The last time we did this, it was for, I can only imagine, people, same people who made this film. I had people who I invited who weren't Christians, who were weeping at the end of that movie, and they went and invited other people who were like atheists to watch the movie as well. So you're really going to be encouraged by it. It's a terrific opportunity. It's part of living in the already and the not yet, folks. The already and the not yet. Let me pray for you before we finish today. Father, for each person who is here today, for those who are watching online, may we simply hold on to the hand of Jesus as he takes us through the suffering and the storms of life as we live in a world that's in bondage to decay we hope and we anticipate the future of your return. Give us faith, Lord, to press on through the darkness of this time and to hold your hand even into eternity. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Remember to pick up your kids in screen 11 if you have them there and to check them out and buy your tickets. We'll have somebody at the desk. Have a great, great Sunday, everyone. Musicians, you can come and play if you want. God bless you, everyone.
good. Very good. Boy.